0: i'm delighted to moderate this next session we can see our panel are here eager to start the conversation delighted to be joined by michael blomfeld who i think is well known to many of you and in his new role as chief commercial officer at IRS, and also anik Donats, who's joining us as the chief executive officer at climb investment management thank you both for joining us we're looking at advice affordability and to open out the dialogue michael some Framing comments might be very meaningful for our assembled delegates.
1: Our assembled delegates can judge that afterwards. (laughs) Um, I should also say, Lawrence, you're like the happiest introducer of a financial services (laughs) thing I've ever met in my life. (laughs) Whatever you're taking, I'm having some. (laughs) (laughs) Available at the
0: tea break. Excellent, excellent.
1: Uh, Intravenously. So um, so look, I think, uh, you know, advice is, I think we should start with the the notion that advice is an incredibly important thing, um, financial advice, uh, and the outcomes that they drive are incredibly important things. and it, they deserve both a regulatory and an operating environment that recognizes the importance and facilitates that. yeah and and that's not to sort of obliquely point the finger at any you know, uh, regulator or otherwise, I- I'm happy to do that directly, not obliquely. Yeah? We have a system around advice that drives a high cost to serve. Um, yes, some people in the room look at, at me and at Iris and say, well, you're part of the problem, and perhaps we are, right? But the system is the, the problem, and for planners whose margin at the end of the day is the sum of the input costs yeah, plus a bit, The plus a bit at the end is still driving a price to the consumer that is too high to allow scaled participation in this very important thing. And so, as an industry, we've got to start working to find ways to deliver industrial scale to a system that can only be as expansive and, and in a sense, as generous um, as the scale of the system, the scaling of the system, allows it to be.
0: And so we've spoken in the workshop about this need for a single voice, for collaboration. I understand as well that this is a time frame where we've got uh, a couple of new regulations that are coming on stream. So obviously the DDO and advice fee consent. You've spoken before, Michael, about that need to be interconnected. Could you clarify and maybe, we hope, draw inspiration from across our delegates as what that looks like?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure how I'll draw inspiration from you, bless you all, but um, the uh, look, it's not about a need to be interconnected, it, it's about a requirement. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that DDO, uh, you know, when, when first, people first contemplated DDO, there was a TMD uh, and, and there was an advisor and there was a client, and we just kind of put them together, right? But, but when you introduce all of the complexity of the, the multiplicity of manufacturers, to the multiplicity, though smaller, admittedly, of platforms, and the important role they play, and then the the advisor, and then we've got to do annual advice, and then TMDs can, can change and go out of date and be reissued, and then we have a complaint process we have to follow and a significant dealing process we have to follow, and all parts of this ecosystem, now all the way out to insurance companies, I was at the Commonwealth Bank branch the other day, and and there was an ad floating past for a term deposit, and at the bottom in the small print, it said, for the TMD, go to this place. This is now massively interconnected, where each party needs to know that each party has done the thing that they need to do. And and that is creating a a very complex, communication obligation and connectivity obligation that is new, yeah? It may, have not, it may not be new in a practical sense, but it's absolutely new in an obligation sense. And so DDO and, uh, and advice for the consent is part of it. Um, if we don't take this opportunity to create an interconnected network, and instead we opt to bilaterally party by thousands of party, invest capital, to non-solve an interconnected problem, then the industry just got more expensive again, uh, the cost to the consumer just got more expensive again, and the number of people who can participate fell again. And Anika,
0: I'm curious, the regulations, the impact they're having on your business right now, how, how do you frame it, what are your concerns as we are midway through 2021?
2: I um, don't have a huge concern with the regulation, I have a concern with the way we interpret the regulation. So, um, A couple of Christmases ago, many of you in this audience know I'm married to an advisor, um, not licensed through Madison, so no conflict. Um, But interestingly, a couple of Christmases ago in Melbourne when we were allowed in that state, I was down there and I introduced him to a couple of other advisors. Now we all know the industry very well, I've worked in the industry as long as they have, and the thing I noticed, and it just clicked, I remember saying to Jamie Johns, I'm at dinner, we're speaking the same language, we're speaking a different dialect. And this is what this industry's done. It's created multiple dialects for one piece of legislation. So, how an advisor interprets information is very different to how the licensee tends to interpret it, very different to how the product manufacturer and so on and so on in the value chain. The issue is that we all have the same intent, we just all have very different expensive lawyers. And the advice you get is based on the legal advice and the risk appetite. And if the advisors could hear us as licensee heads today, right now, what would our community be thinking? Like, what would our advisors be thinking right now if they'd heard everything they've heard this morning? I mean, the greatest thing I've learnt this morning is the, is the, the very young, very, very smart people who have done the mind map on the interconnection and complexity of the legislation that we have. And I think one of the things we should do mm. is exactly the same thing for, the, for templates and fact finds. I mean, how many people here think they've got a fact find like the person sitting next to them? Unless they work for the same company. Unless they work for the same company. Not one of us, right? How many people here think they have the same risk profiling process as the licensee next to them? That's scary. And we're now handing that to 18,000 or however many thousand advisors to have conversations with millions of consumers, and no wonder they're all confused.
0: Mm. Fragmentation and different dialects the beginning of that presumably it's not just here but it you know there are different seeds that we can see i'm curious michael if you were to have a sort of magic wand that you could wave what would it look like to start beginning to remove the fragmentation and and get collaboration
1: these abstract questions (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, i think that If you took a blank sheet of paper to this industry, uh, and in the era in which we we live, you would look to create a genuinely industrial engineered scale Mm -hmm. underpinning. And that would go to data. That would go to standardization to the fullest extent possible of process. And when I say the fullest extent possible, don't um, misunderstand. I think what we, we as an industry need to do is get really, really clear about what represents competitive parity and what represents competitive advantage. Mm. And so uh, my view is that we have historically invested highly excessive sums into what in the end is competitive parity. And there isn't been enough capital allocated, because there's not enough left, to um, competitive advantage. And so what, what I would say is that the uh, given some way of uh, uh, assuring people that a particular risk profiler does the job and meets the test and won't get you sued. It's how you implement that with a client that delivers competitive advantage. For most financial planners their competitive advantage comes from them. It's them as a human, their empathy, their intelligence, um, the intelligence of the organisation that sits with and behind them and the way that they interact with clients and create better outcomes by listening and understanding and communicating. None of that goes to, right respectfully, none of that goes to DDO, mm. right? Little of that, to be slightly controversial, goes to FOFA, right? What it goes to is is the interaction. And I think that's the place and, and the things that facilitate that where competitive advantage can be can be gained, but there's not enough money to go around, and so we do need and and don't get me wrong, like, I am from Iris, we are in a sense arguing our case here. I'm not, I'm not hiding from that, but we are looking to build that in a way that is an open architected ecosystem. Mm. So that comp- direct competitors like Midwinter can hook into that you know, in the same way that we hook into that and in consume our own services. So I guess
0: we're talking a lot about architecture that needs to be built. Mm-hmm. Sometimes to get that call to action, it's almost worth having the hypothetical of what happens if we don't go down that path. So i ask both of the panel. I'll start with you, Anique, what does it look like, as you spoke earlier about the dialects continuing, they almost have their own evolution that take them further away. What's the implication for the industry, for the consumer? Where would we find ourselves if we don't start collaborating?
2: So in 20 years time, when there is another ALRC, they'll be going, what were they thinking? And that's what's going to happen in this industry if we don't start now. Um, I I don't know, who was here five years ago at Licensee Summit? Few of you, right? Were you here when mary got on stage and said they'd just paid X-Plan or an exorbitant amount of money to look at Prime, Scar Advice? I remember getting on stage then. I think I was on stage next to, I think Jamie and a couple I think Graham was on there next to me or something. And I said, imagine if we'd all put in the same amount of money, at the institutions, not the small licensees, as CBA had into IRIS, where would we be today? Instead, there's a whole bunch of development of faction-type widgets and you know things that plug into other things that don't actually help the advice process. They create more advice friction, if anything else. And then the other thing, too, is getting that sign-off from the licensee and dealing with the PI insurer and dealing with the regulator and dealing with whatever policy anyone came up with to do to actually deliver advice. Now, if you ask the end consumer, what they want, is they want to walk in a room, speak to someone they can trust and relate to, get the advice that is most relevant to them at the point in time that it is relevant, and have it implemented. Mm. They don't want to come back and have had little or no response in two, two weeks, four weeks, five weeks, or even six weeks, and they don't want to have read wads of paper they don't understand. Mm. But they do want it documented in some shape or form. They want to understand where they're going, and they want it delivered in a way that they can actually understand it and implement it. I just don't want it to be difficult. And if we don't do this now, right now, we're going to make it increasingly difficult.
0: Anything to add, Michael?
1: Oh, I, well, I think that, um, you know, we, we sit here kind of in the shadow of the biggest drawdown, mm. um, pre-retirement drawdown in super mm. in history, and hopefully the biggest ever, because one hopes it doesn't happen again. And the question is, how do those people catch up, yeah? Uh, and, and just to step aside from that for a minute, we had the future of financial advice. I, I, again, slightly controversially say that it turns out the future of financial advice was more complex financial advice for fewer, richer people. Yeah? Now, the pathway that we are on is, is the continuation and the intensification of that funnel. And if we're not very careful... We will end up doing, and I don't say this critically, but many of the private wealth, former full-service stockbroking firms, right, what they've said is, I'm not doing retail, that's just risky. So I'm just gonna do sophisticated investors and I avoid all sorts of complexity. That's where we'll end up, yeah? We will end up being unwilling to talk to anyone with less than one and a half or two million dollars. We will be pleasantly charging them, you know, $10,000, $15,000 a year. We may, as a set of advisors in our community, be making about the same money, maybe, Mm. right? But there'll be less of them. And, And what happens is that this huge swathe of Australians, yeah, who coming into this pandemic, you know, suffered well documented levels of financial stress, yeah. Where, you know, in my old firm, we could be able to show that 10 and adult Australians had a financial need that goes unmet because they have line item needs, as has been discussed here today, not holistic needs. Uh, and what we will do is we'll concentrate this industry, uh, you know, into a fantastic deal for high net worths and we will leave the rest of the country behind. And, and I hesitate to say this, But there are countries that have run that experiment. Mm -hmm. Yeah? And it does not end well. And particularly if you're not understanding where I'm getting to, it doesn't end up with well elected leaders either. Mm. No advice
2: about elections. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Uh, There's a, at lunch today, there, I was sitting next to Alison Henderson from Science Wong and Dante, or in between the two of them. And we're talking about this. This um, definition of advice, you know, general information. If you've read the green paper from FSC, general information, simple, complex, whatever. Alison, you're in, you're in the room somewhere. I know you are. All right. When a client comes and sees you, do they come and see to you and say, "Look, Alison, I'd really like to just have some simple, personal advice"? No.
0: They oh, don't. just just grab the uh, the roving microphone and turn it on. Yeah, there we go perfect. Oh
3: no, they don't. They they generally come in. Um, and they, they know they want to um, have something addressed, um, but generally, you know, as you speak to them, often you know, other things come out. So I don't think you can categorise general and simple and complex into two distinct buckets. There's always a spectrum. Is um, I guess what I see when I see clients. Yeah.
2: And here's what we're going to do. We're going to define advice, but we're still not going to be able to implement it. That's what's going to happen. And we start at the wrong end of the problem statement. The problem we're trying to solve, and I've heard people say this a few times, and it's in a number of papers I've read over the last few months, is getting more Australians to understand their money so they know exactly what it is, or how they can support their families, and support their livelihood, and support their future. I think that's what we're all in the room for. Otherwise, you you would not work in advice otherwise, because seriously, It's gut wrenching some days and it's really exhausting. Who's not exhausted, right, from just dealing with reading regulation? So if we're here today or any other day when we get up and go to work to make sure that advice is accessible to more Australians, then the first thing we need to understand is what those Australians need and want and execute backwards from there. Instead, we define advice in some convoluted way, it is completely convoluted, and we create more processes, more widgets, more tools, more something else and we forget to look after the thing that matters the most the spine of what we're trying to achieve. Like, quite frankly we use Iris we use a reseller over Iris and I've been at Andrew Walsh for years going you should guys have should have done this but granted there's stuff they didn't get right but there's plenty of us in the room that have, haven't got things right in the industry many of us right? so why don't we just stop bitching about what we didn't get right and start thinking about what we should get right. What will
0: you do now? A time to be proactive. Um, Colin's about to address, but also, I think uh, we'll go to a table discussion so that we can crowdsource some really meaningful uh, contributions. Your table discussion, so this is new from this morning, you're a a new cohort to each other, is where do you see frustration in the advice process? What can be eliminated or streamlined? Uh, (laughs) There's plenty to think about, so we'll give you seven to eight minutes and reconvene to tap into your observations on each table. Okay, uh, thank you so much for your table discussions. I thoroughly hope that you've achieved a great deal. We are ready now to crowdsource what you've calibrated and to run the rule over it. I can see that table two uh, are thoroughly immersed in the conversations, so that's good. Table discussions that obviously achieved a great deal. Uh, we'll try and get through as many as we can. Uh, table two, uh, Simon Hall, you've been identified as someone that was immersed in that, and I can see, uh, <laughs> who's your team captain for the next? Uh... Please, please, uh, just put on the, uh, the microphone button with the so it goes red, and try and either project into it or get it as close as possible.
4: I'll try to project, and thank you, Simon, for dubbing me in, appreciate it, mate. Right? Um, Now, we're talking about the whole frustration thing and how frustration is not a bad thing. Because frustration then leads you to find a solution, and that means we need to be smarter with how we think about things and how we innovate. So, if there weren't frustrations, they would just all plod along and be all happily floating our boats in a big sea of vanilla where we're all exactly the same, and that's not a world I want to be in.
0: There we go. Uh, Anique, uh, frustration's uh, prompts action.
2: are prompt action. Frustration's only good, though, if you're actually gonna act out of it, right? So, I like to call it inspirational dissatisfaction. So, you become so dissatisfied with something, you're inspired to do something with it afterwards. Staying frustrated, actually, I won't say what I'm thinking. Staying frustrated for a long period of time and getting nowhere leads to anxiety and depression, a whole bunch of other things we don't wanna do.
5: Indeed.
6: Okay, let's go to table. this table, Todd.
5: Can you can just introduce yourself. Todd Kardash from the Clearview Licensees uh, Group. Um, We sort of thought about why is the advice so costly? And it's it's purely because the advisor cannot get away from the fact he's got to do a 50, 60, 70-page document Mm -hmm. to give that client. So if you could streamline the paperwork... If you could come up with a, a way that legislation would allow advisers to give piecemeal advice, you know, a five-pager, um, then that will bring down the cost of advice substantially. You know, at the moment, you know, an can't do that. They can't, you know... Rob was giving an example about his mum, you know, his adviser fired her at the age of 85 because she didn't have enough. So, you know, but you can't do that for $1,000 because you need to go into the circumstances, situation, understand, and, and so legislation needs to look at ways that advisors can actually do piecemeal advice um bit by bit
6: just before we leave this table i'm going to give rob the microphone rob you um must be sitting here thinking this is groundhog day rob coombs former ceo of bt today executive chairman colonial first state how come we're sitting here having this conversation rob
7: I've got no idea. I disappeared from the industry for seven years and a lot happened in that time, let me tell you. I mean, it, uh, just going back to what Todd was saying, I, I sit on the phones at work. We've got a million customers. Just in the past three years, um, there was like 900,000 had an advisor three years ago. In the past three years, that's gone down to 600,000. So, they're called the orphan clients. It's not a particularly good term. But... It is very, very distressing when you're sitting on the phones uh, with these people who had an advisor who helped them with very basic and simple things, uh, but very important things, no longer being able to get access to, to advice. And I kept thinking of my mum, that's how it came up. The same thing happened to her at the age of 85. Her advisor rang up and said, you know, I can't afford to serve you anymore. And like, luckily I was there, not that I'm... Uh, authorised to give advice, but I do to my mum. I'm sure there's an exemption there somewhere. But that, 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 that's kind of playing out not. every day, <laughs> hundreds of thousands of times. And, and the, as I said, the distress breaks your heart when you, you listen to these calls. It's, it's extremely distressing. So, whether Todd's got the solution or other practitioners, we've got to, we've got to come up with a solution here.
6: Well, look, why don't you pass the mic to Paul next to you, because I think Paul's got the solution. Mm-hmm. I actually got sacked from JB Weir as a client last year. They called me up. One of those calls, you don't make it to be a client. Um, we're ditching you.
4: based on personality, not funds. <laughs>
6: <laughs> and it <there> was... <laughs> so, Paul, uh, you used to be the CEO of JB Weir. It's a true story. Uh, but now you're running the, uh, the uh, uh, very... Um, Coda Capital, which is, you know, everyone quotes me continually, that's the firm they want to be, you seem to be cracking in, or are you just cracking it for the top 2%? Yeah,
4: Colin, you know, let's be clear. We, we're a high net worth advisory business and um, we're configured and set up for a client segment that wants independent advice and is prepared to pay for it. But, you know, the question, the question I have is, what is the industry prepared to give up to get a more streamlined regulatory framework? The bulk of the regulation that we rail against exists because of an inability to manage conflicts of interest appropriately. And so I I think that um, a recognition that conflicts of interest create a problem um, begins there. And then you can set a regulatory framework that's built around trust and not something else, and it and it cascades away. But I know it's easy for me to say that from where we sit, but that but I think that's a reality. Um, And perhaps there's no better time to be thinking about making those changes to business models. Perhaps it's a bifurcation of the industry between those who are prepared to act without a conflict of interest, can operate under a different regulatory regime than those that want to. Um, And I think all those things are going to be on the table because um, I think we're we're all in that situation. (laughs) Ironically, at my firm, we actually had to have one of our advisors close down his mum's account because he wanted to look after his mum, I said, We've well, got to provide all the statements of advice and things like that. And they couldn't do it appropriately. It's a big problem that the industry's got to get around.
6: All right, thanks, Rob. And also to you, Paul, for letting me put you on the spot. Back to you, Lawrence.
1: Lawrence, can I just make one point about this? And, you know, I, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I, I'd be willing to bet every single person in this room has given off book advice to a relative, right? Why does that happen? It happens because. They want small pieces of advice or need small pieces of advice. And good regulation, good regulation recognises human nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, my view. But the, the model that we run, particularly post fofa is what I call the all-marriage, no-dating model. <laughs> yeah, You've got to walk into someone, y- you've got to give them two hours of your life, every single piece of information about your life, including, you know, the uh, the settlement from your divorce, not divorced, I always say that when I say this, not divorced, but you know, the settlement from your divorce, the fact you have gotta keep 5,000 bucks aside just in case, you know, I don't know, drunk Uncle Rob goes off the rails, all of this very personal stuff, right? And at the end of it, the advisor takes all that away and comes back with a proposition that says, I'm gonna give you advice on everything or nothing. And it's quite expensive, yeah? And that is not the way the humans work, right? Humans meet, you know, text, have coffee, go for lunch, go for a movie, yeah? That's how they build relationships and it happens over time. And, and the regulation doesn't support that and I think that's an enormous problem. And it, the, the, the Justice herself is shaking her head. So I'm I just... To, I don't want to go dating. Oh, not um, dating? There we go. Well, Justice, you need to talk to Rob. He's got a better advisor. <laughs> um, but I think you know. I, I think it's a, it is a very real thing. And again, when, when you look at the data of of what people want in Australia, it's about eight percent of Australians who say that full service advice is what they want, and all the rest say, well, I want piece by piece of advice. And and but most of them, I can't remember the number, but most of them say, if over time that built to something that looks like full service advice, I'd be perfectly happy.
2: Where's Bernie? I'm not gonna do a relative of FOFA. Map My Plan. How many consumers are on Map My Plan, roughly?
7: Uh, roughly twelve thousand.
2: It's a lot of people, right? And all people. they do is they go through by themselves.
6: It's self-directed.
2: Self-directed, right? That's the other conversation we need to be having yeah. here. Mm-hmm. So that conversa- for those of you who aren't aware of Map My Plan, which I think everyone is, the, the the consumer goes in and creates their own plan. It's a plan. There's no implementation in it, it's just a plan. They can put in their own data, they can control their own adventure uh, and then they can... Well, which is important if you want people to be co-responsible for their money. Since when, we allow people to abdicate their responsibility around anything. But um, Matt, my plan, not that this is not a plug because I literally haven't looked at it for a very long time, but there are people here who can be Mm self-directed. And one of the discussions we're not having at this table is self-directed. And I can... I would probably guess... In fact, I think there's a lot of science around and data around this is... If you allow anyone to get access to information, at a point in time, the information becomes so important to them that they go and get advice. Yeah. Whatever that advice is, whether it's financial advice or they want to run a marathon, whatever it is, at a point in time, they'll go and get an expert. Right now, a lot of Australians don't know what they don't know mm. about advice. They just think it's expensive because the whole world tells them it's expensive. Um, but you know, we still haven't f- fixed cash flow and budgeting. Right? We yeah. still haven't fixed that, and that's a point in time. And um, you know, people. Are, when you tell people you're in the financial services industry, they say, "What's a good stock? What's a good?" It's the best advice you can give: spend less than you earn, and the rule of 72, compound interest. Right? Very basic, but we cannot today, as adv- I'm not an advisor, but we cannot today as advisors give that advice without a convoluted structure. It is not possible as it stands today, in our environment.
0: Please.
6: Okay. Thank you. Let's go to uh, Susie Peterson of Mercer, who we haven't heard from yet. Thanks, yep.
3: Susie. Thanks. Um, so the business that I'm running does everything from intrafund, we're just implementing or re-implementing digital because we had a solution that doesn't that went bust, and we have comprehensive advice. So I'm really interested in this whole piece because I think we do need to get more into the hands of the, the client at the time in the way they want to do it. Mm-hmm. To do that we've got to get better data integration right across our businesses. Part of it's to do with iris and and um, data feeds, but also part of it is the big end of town, providing a consistent level of data, superannuation funds. How hard is it to get data collection from our super funds to tell us, you know, what, what are the um, components of this client's um, balance, et cetera, and what's the insurance in there? We talked about industry funds there earlier. Well, we're sort of a hybrid between industry and retail because we've got a lot of corporate super, and we're the same thing. Like... The technology is not there and we've had long enough with this technology but we haven't chosen to invest together, Anik. I think that's the point that you made about Prime and CBA, etc. We all want that solution but we're all off pretending that there's some competitive advantage. There's not. It's hygiene.
2: I was saying to Michael before we got on stage, what do you have, probably 60, 70... Iris has probably 70, 80% of the data of the industry so they would probably have every version of a fact find, every version of an SOA, every version of a file note, why don't we just start there, and like the very clever young people, can we borrow young people, please, <laughs> just um, and analyse, Iris has people. got some really clever yeah. young people Sorry. in it, and analyse how many different forms we have, in what form, so how many different fact finds there are across the licensees, I can guarantee you there'll be hundreds, and how many different data collection forms of any description. there will be found out templates, there'll be hundreds. I think we need to do that. So we're
6: almost on time, but we're going to now hear... You've heard all the problems, Mahita. Mahita is from the Treasury Department and is here to fix our problems. Over to you.
8: (laughs) 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 I'm not quite sure um, that's quite, you know, a big challenge. But one of the questions I wanted to kind of come back to was this idea that piecemeal advice and, you know, people know what they want and kind of just challenge the industry on that. I go to a GP. I go. I've got a headache, and it turns out I've got bowel cancer, yeah. and I'm in chemo because they've done, you know, they've gone through lots of processes. They've sent me to thirteen different referrals, and I actually end up, if I'm lucky, on the other side of it with you know, chemo and whatever else. Um, kind of next question: On people sometimes go, I've got a thousand dollars, or I've got a hundred thousand dollars that I've inherited, and that's the bit that I want. How does the reg- you know, some of the challenges that we face when we think about it is. Consumers don't understand money. They don't understand compound interest. Um, People don't understand what they need to know. They don't know how to ask the um, the right questions. So we've now created a regulatory system almost, as you say, bubble, you know, in some sense, it's protecting the consumer, um, whether that's the right calibration or not. You know, I'm happy to say probably not. But it's just, you know, when we think about these problems around piecemeal advice, how do we solve that problem? How do we solve the problem that, as a punter on the street, I don't know what questions to ask. I'd come and tell you I've got $100,000, but what I also have is about to get divorced, Um, you know, an uncle who's looking at a liability, which I've co-signed some sort of a form for. How do we resolve that in a regulatory system that has the right balance? That's the challenges we face, and I think, you know, having some industry-led solutions and suggestions for that calibration is going to be really useful when we come back and talk a bit more about how do we think about it going forward. That's not a solution to any problems, by the
0: way. We've got time for a closing comment that will wrap all that up.
1: Oh, (laughs) so I I mean, I think here's the problem is in many ways that um, prohibiting a group of people from getting advice is not protecting them. Yeah, whether you prohibit them by law or whether you prohibit them by the effect of the law, being that the cost of doing so is so high they can't afford it, that's a bad outcome. Yeah. So we come back to, to the sort of core, and, and I guess you know this is my and our proposition. If anyone wants to talk to us about committing to an infrastructure approach to the industry, yeah, that drives down the cost by saying what is competitive parity and what is competitive uh, advantage, knowing that in each organisation, you know, from hub. Uh, through to Colonial, everybody in the room is going to have competitive advantage that they can bring, there's no question about that. But how do we stop spending money on the wrong thing? Uh, and you know, if that's a conversation I'd like to have. That's exactly, just to clear up the rumor, I know partly that you're spreading, Jason, that's why we bought OneView, that's why we're doing the things that we're doing, because we're trying to build industry infrastructure that is able to be rented and deployed in ways that go to lower cost overall.